Hello and welcome back to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. We're selecting highlights from our recent festival events and combining them with backstage conversations with some of the world's best writers and thinkers on the influences and interests that shape their work. Today is the turn of global health expert Devi Shridhar, who delivered our John Maddox lecture this year with her new book Preventable, The Politics of Pandemics and How to Stop the Next One. We'll start with an excerpt from the lecture before she has a chat with me about her passions outside of work. What we could predict from the start was recurring lockdown cycles. And people keep saying, well, oh, we didn't know there was going to be lockdowns for 18 months. And the truth is, if we hadn't had a vaccine, we probably might still be in lockdown cycles. Because what the basic problem for every country was their healthcare capacity. And this was the graph that every probably leader saw across the world from their scientists, which is, this is the number of cases, we're going to exceed our healthcare system, which is going to collapse, unless we put in restrictive measures to limit the spread of how this virus goes. And you could see different countries would have different healthcare capacity lines, but even if you saw Lombardy fall, one of the wealthiest countries, so their line quite high in terms of capacity, you realize no country could manage this without having to implement some kind of strategy and response to this virus. And the thing I think got confused in the media is this wasn't about COVID patients, not getting care. This is about all patients because healthcare is finite. So that means your kid has appendicitis, there's nobody in hospital. You're having a heart attack, there's no one in hospital to care for you. So then you get complete, what I would say, state failure because people are going to hospitals and you have seen that in India, Jordan, parts of even the United States with family members actually starting to be violent because they're like, my loved one needs care and there's no one offering it. And so that's what healthcare collapse actually means. It doesn't mean um, you know, people think, oh, COVID patients just have to go off and manage themselves. And so what could countries do? The early choices for countries was actually quite simple in some way, and they all had trade-offs. You could either be New Zealand or an island and maybe say, I want to go for effective elimination. What we'd say, you lock down hard, you clear the virus with mass testing and tracing, you put strict border measures to stop the virus coming in, and you try to keep stopping imported cases. Easier if you're an island in the Pacific, harder if you're very interconnected, also easier if you're smaller. You can imagine an island of a few million people, easier to manage than if you're India with over a billion. The second one was control, where most countries ended up, which is kind of just trying to, I almost see it as like a holding pattern. They didn't know how they were going to exit this, but they said, actually, we'll do kind of a voluntary light lockdown, very strong test trace isolate, strict rules over super spreading events where many people get infected, like here today, and light border checks. So for example, making sure you were having testing, but not complete shutdown the way some islands did. And the third was herd immunity, where Britain started. Funny enough, Sweden and Netherlands followed Britain. Britain pivoted, they didn't. They were like, oh, but we were following you. And Britain's like, no, no, we're going the other way now. Um, and there it was the idea that actually there's not going to be a vaccine. There's not going to be a solution scientifically. So we have to just run this through the population and try to keep confidence in the economy and kind of keep going. Because in the end, the, the feeling was it was inevitable that we were all going to get it. So if we're all going to get it, we might as well get it over with rather than postponing that into the future. And so what you saw then going now, we're a couple years out, is... Vaccines came along and post-vaccine strategies changed. And those that managed to buy time through control or suppression, you can see here South Korea on the bottom, their deaths over these years are way less than, for example, the United States or Britain because of their early choice of strategy to hold for something coming in the future. And South Korea never had harsh lockdowns. What they did have was very intrusive testing and tracing. But they thought, instead of locking everyone down, we're just going to lock down those who are infectious. And those were the difficult decisions for governments they had to make early on. 
So now with the vaccine, the whole picture has changed again, because now there's the general acceptance we have to live with this virus. But what we're seeing is actually China is struggling. Some of you might have seen in China that they're still focusing on zero COVID, but Hong Kong there. And the thing that comes down to is how many people are unvaccinated among your elderly. And countries like New Zealand and Singapore suppress, 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 got the vaccine, did mass vaccination, opened up, and they didn't take a lot, big loss of life. Or if you look at Hong Kong and China, they are struggling because they still have a lot of people unvaccinated, which means if they open up, the death toll could be pretty traumatic. And that's what you've seen with Hong Kong. Hong Kong has actually passed many European countries in its death toll because it hasn't pivoted based on the new tools they had and new variants like Omicron. And what you can do if you compare, for example, New Zealand and Hong Kong is both look very similar both taking a wave of cases with Omicron, which is so transmissible, it's pretty difficult to stop without harsh measures. But what we're seeing is the deaths on the bottom are much, much higher in Hong Kong, and that comes down to vaccination rates among those groups who need to be protected. Uh, should I try again? <laughs> the watch said, please try again, but I will, I will keep going. So next thing we wanna do is what we couldn't predict. So what I was surprised at when I was going out and doing media about this, again, coming from an international perspective, is how many debates I would sit in over whose life is more valuable, the young or the old, the healthy or someone who has cancer. And I found this soul-destroying, if I'm honest, because I just thought we had evolved past the point of actually valuing people based on if they have cancer or if they're asthmatic or if they have ME or if they're 75 or 60. And I was even asked by the BBC that given the number of the deaths were in over 60s, was this an acceptable toll? And this really made me see red, which is very difficult because you're trying to kind of be professional. But I was thinking of all the people I knew, including my grandparents, who were healthy, vibrant people in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And the idea that, oh, well, too bad, when we had tools and we knew vaccines were there was to me really awful. I fought those battles. Sometimes I did lose my cool. I didn't mean to be inappropriate on morning TV, but I guess sometimes it was just, it got too much to actually have to keep pushing for this. And the point that frustrated me is we kept talking about people or the economy. Should we save the lives of COVID patients or the, the economy? And what you could actually see was that countries that were able to not able to control their outbreaks had more economic pain. You had longer lockdowns because you had to work harder to stay underneath that line of healthcare capacity. So in a way, the best thing you could do was to keep your numbers low to have a good economic recovery. And then post vaccines, the best thing you could do was vaccinate as widely as possible and then open up cautiously and carefully to make sure there was confidence to go to restaurants, to go to events like this, for people to rebuild their confidence, to go out there and know they weren't going to die of this new disease. We could sort of predict variants. I think there was a worry that it would transform the picture. And there were numbers, and every single time, the questions in our mind were, how transmissible is it? It's gotten pretty transmissible. Now we're having strains of Omicron, BA4, BA5. Each one is like a car driving, and it's just getting faster and faster and faster, and we're trying to run alongside it. And that's been the challenge. The picture kept changing with variants the hospitalization rate or the health outcomes, and of course, evasion. And what that means is if you've had COVID before and you get it again, will you be really sick or will you be um, healthy um, and manage, managing the new strains? And what you've seen is in country after country, you've had new COVID-19 cases and they have completely transformed the picture. So India thought they were over the worst. They declared success. Delta hit and they had that horrific wave you might have heard of last spring, out of nowhere. Same with 
even where I'm from, Florida, thinking they were through the worst. And so in a way, whenever you thought you understood things, I remember there'd be these meetings called, and you'd walk in and you'd be like, this like shocked, because you'd say, I thought alpha was the most transmissible thing there was. And then Delta came along. Delta can infect people who are fully vaccinated. That's okay. Then Omicron comes ahead, you need boosters. So at every point, it's been like, the puzzle has changed of how to solve this problem of COVID-19. And what we could sort of predict was that vaccine distribution would be an issue. And I just want to raise this because I work in a global context. So early on, advanced countries seeing the trials and realizing vaccines are the way out of this started signing purchasing agreements for many times their population. And the reason was because they wanted to diversify their portfolio. They didn't know which was going to be the winner of the vaccines. So they wanted to actually just acquire as many as they could, and then they could be ready to have those agreements to get the vaccines in. And you can understand it because this was a race against time. So of course, if you have the money and will and taxpayers, citizens demanding the end of restrictions, you would go toward this. But what this led to was some parts of the world racing ahead to vaccinate their populations for one time, two times, three times, and parts of Africa largely just left behind because they didn't have supply and they were waiting on the charity of the West. They kept waiting saying, actually, when are you going to give us the vaccines? Is it going to be after two doses? Okay, we'll wait. Oh no, you need boosters? We'll wait. Oh, you're going to give a fourth dose? Now you're going to do kids? So in a way, the charity model has failed, and that's where a lot of discussion is now. What do we do about the red spots in the world which have not managed to get vaccines, while kind of richer countries have managed to sprint ahead? What else could we not predict? So I couldn't predict I would end up being portrayed in Snow White as the witch, but I also couldn't predict that GPs and the NHS would become the bad guys in the end of this. The frustrations that people had over two years of not getting health care, not getting access to early cancer diagnosis, not having access if they needed a knee replacement, would be taken out on the NHS staff themselves. And I can say there might be some here. The mental health toll of feeling like you've worked for two years nonstop, long hours, put your own life at risk, often to go in to see patients as a GP in their homes when you're not sure you know, what they have, then have a public backlash about being lazy, being you know, um, overpaid, all these kind of things. I just think there's something really wrong with our priorities and our media, if that's actually where the focus of this is where things are wrong at. So where do we move from here? Because the second part of my book is, how do we stop the next one? What's really exciting, I think, is there has been change among governments to say this cannot happen again, never again. And what they're trying to plan for is what you're called the kind of 100-day mission, which is it took 365 days to move from sequencing a new pathogen in January, understanding what is this, to getting vaccines into arms. It was one year. How do we do that even faster? Can we do it within 100 days? And the 100 days focuses on vaccines, therapeutics, and testing. And they're using something called plug-and-play platforms, which is almost like a video game. They create these platforms, and they can take the sequencing and put them in. And mRNA vaccines, never before used, that's the technology behind Pfizer and Moderna, are very good at this. We might have vaccines against HIV, even a universal flu vaccine, you know, different technologies now that we didn't have because of the jumps we made. And I just wanted to come to showing how fast this was. So this is a graph showing from detecting a disease to actually getting a vaccine, how fast, and COVID-19 is at the top. Humanity has never come together this way. Scientists across the world to say, we don't care about credit, we want to do this because it'll save people's lives. And the question now is, can we do it even faster in the next time? 
Two hiccups, just to mention though, before it sounds too kind of markety and glowy, is the first is that what takes a lot of time is trials. Phase one, phase two, phase three, and this is why we make them safe and effective. So when I was asked in December, when the Pfizer vaccine was being approved, I think I was asked on channel four, would you take the vaccine? I confidently said yes, because I said, well, it's been through phase one, phase two, phase three, I've seen the results. This is not a new vaccine. This has been trialed in hundreds, thousands of people, and we understand it in a pretty robust way. If you make it 100 days, how do you do those trials without sacrificing safety and effectiveness, but also trust in the public? So for example, Russia sprinted ahead with the Sputnik vaccine, the first to be actually approved anywhere in the world. The Russian population has one of the lowest vaccination rates because people don't trust the process, because they didn't go through the stages of saying these were the steps we went through to make sure it's safe for you to take. And the second thing is, what do you do in those 100 days? Imagine we have MERS, another coronavirus that kills a third of people. What would you do? Would you ask people to lock themselves away again? Are there rapid testing you could set up? Can we keep schools running? We know school closures are very harmful, sometimes unfortunately necessary. So what do you do in those 100 days? And I think those are the kind of discussions we have to be having because the science is running ahead in terms of, yes, we're going to do this, these are the platforms, but how do you build the societal part of that and the economic part of that during that process? I think the other thing that I do worry about is priorities beyond that, that we've been very COVID obsessed and focused for two years. But in public health, we're actually concerned with everything that impacts someone's well-being and their health. What makes them ill, what makes them happy. At the end, we want everyone to live like happy, joyful lives, like including Britney Spears. We all enjoy and deserve that. And I think here, what does worry me right now, looking at the situation as COVID is increasingly managed, I won't say solved, we haven't solved it, we've managed it better, is the cost of living crisis, how expensive life is becoming, what does this mean for a generation of children and child poverty who will grow up, let's say, without proper food, without actually clothes, this is what we're actually seeing, an increase in the use of food banks, but at the same time, a rise in child obesity and physical inactivity, we know that over lockdown, this actually increased inequalities, the fit became fitter, and those who were unhealthy became unhealthier, Mental health, especially in adolescence, if you talk to pediatricians, I think it's very important to talk to people on the front line. They say, actually, we are really worried at the number of teenagers who are coming in who are very depressed or having eating disorders or other things like this because of how traumatic it's been those two, two years. And finally, educational recovery. And that's an issue here, it's an issue in, in Scotland, but it's particularly an issue in low-income countries. In places like Malawi, girls who, where schools were shut, and schools were largely shut for a much longer period, a year, year and a half, they will never go back to school. They are now either married off, or they have taken jobs, and they have lost their chance of an education. And an education, even in these contexts, is something that no one can take away from you. And so I think that, I think, is right now the challenge, which is how do we undo what was done over the past year and a half to address those harms, and how do we learn from this so the next time we can, all of us, even if it's in baby steps, do better next time. If you'd like to watch the rest of Devi's lecture, you can do so by signing up to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. After the event, I grabbed a very energetic Debbie to talk more about her extracurricular passions, starting by getting her to recall her early character traits that have fed into her career. Oh, I'm a planner. So I was kind of the person who'd be like, what are we doing in two days? What are we doing in four days? What are we doing in a year? In a year and a half, where will we be? So I think people always like started to rely on me to plan what was coming ahead. And I think actually what I've had to learn the past couple of years is you can't plan everything and you just have to kind of sometimes be in the moment and in the day and think whatever comes, I can manage it. 
But yeah, I think as a kid, people were like, oh, she's going to know what's happening in a week because she, she, she plans everything ahead of time. Did you, do you feel like you were interested in anything that you didn't feel like was very cool or you kept a secret from anyone? I kept a secret, but I loved reading. So I spent many hours in the library. I loved Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes. Um, grew up in Miami. You can imagine that's not the coolest thing to be doing, like sitting in the library reading. But um, I really enjoyed like just getting into books, into stories, and getting into other worlds because um, it's like escapism, right, through stories. And also empathy, where you can start to kind of see other people's point of view based on how a story is written. So yeah, I'd say like, I know it's fitting for it, hey, but like reading. Yeah, it's been a popular answer, that one, I have to say. <laughs> um, is there anything that you feel like you really enjoy, but you're bad at it? Oh, tennis. So I would have loved to be a professional tennis player. So if I was any good at it, um, you'd be interviewing me and asking me about my latest serve technique and how I won that match against Serena Williams. But unfortunately, I'm absolutely rubbish at it. So, yeah, I took plan B, which is an academic and a writer. Do you still play? Yes, but I'm no good at it. But I think, like, I do think if there's anything, I think being a professional sports person is probably the coolest job there is. It's a huge toll associated with it. But if you gave me the ability, like, a wand, like, I always thought I'd have, like, a magic power. So I'd be like, she's going to beat Martina Hingis tomorrow. And people are like, who that person came out of it? How does she play tennis? And I got magic to do it. That was the kind of stuff I thought about. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, and you have been training as a personal trainer, haven't you, in lockdown? Yeah, I have been. So hopefully down in the next um, few months. And so I've just been learning about all back to medical school joints and bones and muscles and you know fat percentage and how not to eat too much cake and balance yeah. and sugar and yeah and I think it's been really useful because I think if more people understood kind of where they were in terms of a baseline in terms of their health assessments and things they could do in their daily lives we'd have more of that but I think there's this feeling of like it's just so daunting people see like either you're super super fit or you just don't do anything, and there I think everyone can do something in their daily lives. So yeah, it's been fun to do it, and like a good, like side passion hobby to have outside of my core work. And uh, are the rumors about Nicola Sturgeon true? Well, yeah. Like as I said, I have to get kind of certified because I have legal insurance. Because I'm kind of afraid, like if I throw out her back or something, I'm like do burpees, and she ends up on the floor, and then they're like FM down caused by her PT. You can see the headline. So. Like, I have to get certified, get insurance, so in case I injure anyone, I'm not going to injure anyone, but in case I do, and then I can be a PT. Yeah, and she's really wanting to get fit and, like, do more running and physical fitness and stuff, and I hope I would make it entertaining that people would want to come train with me, because it'd be fun and a laugh and yeah. get some exercise in, too. Do you find that a kind of difficult, like, relationship almost between, like, fitness and interest and that, and then the work that you do? Well, I think it naturally aligns because I'm in public health and health is about kind of prevention. The book is called Preventable that I've just finished. And I think it's all about kind of so much things that you can do in terms of your physical health that improve your mental health and your well-being. And so I think there are things that we don't think about. Like we think a lot about hospitals and about GP clinics, but I think we need to think more about kind of cities and designing active cities and come, that comes down also to physical well-being and training. And I think it's a good compliment because like public health is about populations and we're always looking like millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people where I think the beauty of a PT is they work with you one-on-one -on -one or in small groups and I think that's quite satisfying as well to actually see people and see like that they enjoy it and that maybe it might change their life in a positive way like in a direct way versus like the population stuff which is like you're speaking to millions of people or hundreds of thousands but you can't really see the impact of what you're saying it seems very abstract sometimes. Do you, is sport something you've always loved even as a kid? Yeah I absolutely love sport ever since I was young everything I did cross country in school like tennis football or soccer as they call it in the states um, I'm willing to try anything I think I just like activity and movement 
um, fun competition, friendly competition. And even now, like it is a big part of my life being active and like getting into sport whenever I can and um, and enjoying it. And also like breaking stereotypes. I think a lot of time people see like South Asian women or South Asian girls and think, oh, they can't swim or they're not sporty. And so to be out there and say, well, actually you can lift weights mm -hmm. in a way and people being like, oh, it kind of changes the way hopefully they see also South Asian women and saying like, oh, they can do things that we don't expect them to do. Um, and so, yeah, it's been kind of fun to be in that space. Would you say you're quite gung-ho when you get a new interest then? You go, well, yeah, amazing. of course, definitely. I think getting into it, getting passionate about it, um, and then trying to kind of stick into it. So during lockdown, I was like paddleboarding. I was like, I'm going to become, until I almost drowned my friend in the Wardy Bay in the North Sea. She's from Hawaii. And I was like, it'll be fine. We'll just go out. And the winds changed, like pushing us out into the North Sea. She's like, this is not Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, and then she's like, are there sharks in the water? And I was like, why are you asking me? We're like, miles out from sea and you're asking me, are there sharks? I'm like, this is not the time to be discussing large animals in the water. Like we should be. Um, focused on getting back to land. We had yeah. to get on our bellies and paddle the whole way back. And we got to land, she looked at me and I was like, I promise you we're not gonna die. But I think she was a bit, <laughs> so since then I've been a bit more cautious. I'm just yeah. like not, not taking my paddleboard out. It's quite dangerous. Many people do die paddleboarding. So for those listening, if you do paddleboard, take your life jacket. <laughs> it definitely seems to be something more and more people do. Every time I go to the beach now, you don't just see surfers, you see people like disappearing around coves. And well, it's really fun because anyone can kind of do it. It doesn't require like a lot of skill, like surfing, which I've tried requires skill, which is why I left it. I was like, I'm not going to go down the path. I'm going to go down the path of laziness, which is standing on a board and kind of floats <laughs> along. But the problem is that people do it and it gives you a false sense of confidence. So before you know it, you have to realize you're on an inflatable plastic thing in the middle of the water. And actually you're kind of at the mercy of the winds and the currents. So I think the sad thing has been, I think people maybe over, like like I was are overconfident or don't wear life jackets and then realize when you fall into water that's freezing, your body stops moving, you need a life jacket. So I think it's been great to see more water sports. We need also reinforcements about life jackets and swimming and safety and like not you know going farther than you think is, is safe at different points. What it's like a water safety that? briefing. You didn't expect yeah. to hear that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I could, we could have saved lives. People listening to this, they're going to wear their life jackets now. Okay, Public health messaging. There you go. With another. That's amazing. <laughs> um, what about guilty pleasures in the mix with all of that? Because obviously, you, you, you work in health. You really love fitness. Do you do anything? Oh. Does it fit with that? Cake. No, I'm really bad about cake and chocolate and sweets, and I absolutely love. Um, I have a sweet tooth and I like yeah. that. So I think for me, it's just about moderation, which is like, you know, you have some cake, but then you also are active and do sport and you kind of compliment it. I think restrictions are really bad to say to people, oh, you can't have some things, then you immediately want it. So just having like a bit, so you feel like you're satisfied, but obviously like balancing it with other stuff. But yeah, I wish, I wish I didn't have a sweet tooth, but I love, like I saw the cakes here at Hay and I got a taste of There's each of them. Cake. There's a lot, of, and it's really surface. good cake. I know, <laughs> but we're at Hay, so yeah. Yeah, when the sun shines. Exactly. Why not? Which, well, I'll run next week. week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the motto of my life, I think, that, that expression. Um, what about intellectually guilty pleasures wise? Do you feel like there's anything that you. Um... Oh, trashy, you know, romantic fiction. You know, like yeah. these were. There's this author I've been reading, and she basically takes like this woman off to an exotic place, and she meets someone from that land, and they hate each other, but then they love each other, and at mm. the end they get. I've read like 25 of her books. <laughs> it's like comes out every winter and every summer, and that for me is like I know what's gonna happen, and the writing is so cookie cutter, but it makes me happy. So I'm like, why not? For me, I, I have a real pet hate of uh, the minute the author gets really indulgent about coffee. 
really? If they describe coffee in a really fancy way, it drives <laughs> me mad. It's just too, because it just, coffee's great and it smells amazing and it's amazing. And but people just get too excited about it sometimes and they're right, you know, she drank the liquid poison. <laughs> and it tasted good and I, I can't, I can't stand it. And especially because I, like, I was a coffee addict and then I stopped drinking coffee because I was having like seven, eight cups a day. And I'm already quite wired. So the coffee was just like taking me over. And then so people talk about coffee. It's like torture. I'm like, can you stop talking oh, about sorry. how good it is? Sorry. It's okay, because now I'm like salivating hearing you talk about that liquid. I'm like, it is liquid poison. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm the same. It d- just gives me the shakes really badly, but it's so delicious. Never mind. Oh, you're not helping. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Cake. Back to cake. Um, what about um, technology? What's your relationship with technology like? Um, Healthy? I wish we, I feel like we should be like frenemies. Like, it's kind of like frenemies. So I use it too often, but I hate it. It's kind of like, you know, I think it's quite toxic. I'm on my phone a lot. I'm on social media a lot. But I also know it's really unhealthy, but you can't really escape that. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship. And I think um, it's been hard because over COVID, so many, I know we weren't going to mention COVID, the, the forbidden word, but I feel like virtual stuff became much more. And so I was always quite good about my phone and WhatsApp and turning it off, but it just went out the window during lockdowns because that was the only way to talk to people. And so I think that's one thing if I could change. I wish I was less kind of on social media and less on my phone, which is going to be ironic, because I'll probably tweet this and put it on Instagram. So. <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> um, it's very weird. I mean, I found it was really strange in lockdown that actually the minute that everything happened, it started getting in touch with people on phones that I never see anyway, who live in other countries and family members. And uh, and then you're like, oh, well, actually, we could have just done this the whole time. And then as soon as COVID ended, so did that. And it, they still live away. I'm just... I don't want to talk to you anymore on the phone. But because you're seeing people in real life. Yeah, not. yeah, I don't need them. Um, <laughs> <it's fine. laughs> I really like, there was a really great um, event with Zadie Smith uh, at one of our, I think it was one of our Colombian festivals a while ago. And she said something brilliant about, um, if you're in a room alone for an hour without your phone, who are you? You're in yoga. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I'm alone. With it. I got told off my yoga teacher because I tried to sneak my phone and he's like, no phones in this safe space. We are in a safe place. I was like, I've got to check Twitter. He's like, no. I was like, I think I sent a tweet. I have to delete. If I don't, it's going to go. And he's like, no, no, no. Phone away. Manifestation. <laughs> breathing. True story. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Do you use your phone a lot when you're doing other sports activities? or? Well, actually, it's a time I don't actually use my phone. So I think, because obviously, how are you supposed to be on your phone if you're playing tennis? You can't really be like on your phone and like what's happening while you're so I think sports a great way or yeah. running so yeah I think people listen to podcasts listen to music but I think that's different because you're kind of passively listening to something um but no like I think that's like and, and yoga and paddleboarding I wouldn't take it on my paddleboard because I always go in the waters so it's gonna go with me and I, we don't want that to happen so yeah. Back in 2002, Devi was the youngest ever U.S. recipient to be awarded the Rhodes Scholarship to study at University of Oxford. I wanted to know what her experience was like of moving from the States to the U.K. and whether she found it much of a culture shock. Oh, definitely, because I also came from Miami. So I wasn't even from like the Northeast, like Harvard part of the country. I was from like University of Miami Beach. You know, and then you go, we're actually in Miami. People try not to sound smart because that's not cool. So they want it cut quite normally. And then you go to like Oxford. Everyone just tries to sound as intelligent as possible with accents. But I didn't fully understand at the time. I mean, it took me a long time to discern like English from Scottish, from Australian, from South African. They were all the same to me. I was like, they all just have accents, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was American. Um, but I'm grateful for the opportunity because I met really interesting people. 
I met great mentors and it kind of launched my career in a new way that I think I wouldn't have. And, and much more international because um, Americans can be quite inward looking. We're like, oh, it's so far. It's California or like that's so exotic. It's Miami or like, have you been to Texas? That's deep south. And then you come to like, you know, Britain, which is so international and people are often India or they're often Australia. And you're like, oh, the world is so much bigger. So I think for my work in global health, it just helped me kind of see the world as a much larger place. And if I'd stayed in America, we're like, so many Americans don't even have passports. Yeah. Like they think in terms of America is the center of the world and being here, you realize it's not the center of the world. It's a very dysfunctional part of the world as we have learned from the past yeah. couple of years. And um, do you feel like you've seen any impact yet with the sort of PT stuff you're doing on, on your work? Um, I think people are really baffled by it. So it's quite okay. funny. So when people find out they think it's like, it's really wacky and I just think it's not that wacky. I guess if you know me, cause I'm really into sport and I wanted to like, do lots of like fitness stuff like I wanted to be what was it P Joe I was like I'm gonna be P Debbie and go out there and like dress in my monkey costume and like get everyone going but I'm not certified so you can't do that with group because again of safety issues so I'm like it's still like pursuing a passion I've been doing for a long time but now in a way that I can actually do it properly I guess it's probably like people who are really into baking or really into I don't know like maybe there are people who are into like tennis or like I want to become a tennis coach and learn that so I think people have different passions and at a certain point you're like oh how do I do this in a proper way beyond just kind of an amateurish way amazing so you're going to be Britain's worst tennis coach <laughs> <laughs> there's a TV program in that she enjoys how it. to turn your child you'll have fun not into the Williams but they'll be really happy but poor yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast Next week, I'll be back with classicist writer and comedian Natalie Haynes. We'll be talking about crushes, knitting and comedy. If you enjoyed this episode, you can give us a rating wherever you're listening or tell a friend about us. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabier Naharo Echanith. I'll see you next Thursday. Thursday.